the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. Would like to open today's episode by saying, hey, shout out to everyone who is celebrating a birthday or just celebrated one or celebrating an anniversary. Shout out to all those kids, class of 2020, who just graduated. Great job, guys. Uh, You know, hopefully you still enjoyed this tremendous milestone despite the different social distancing, you know, laws in effect. Hi, I'm Ben. Hey, Ben. I'm Noel. Ben, uh, did you ever have a birthday where, where where someone popped for a human being to pop out of your cake? Uh, no, not not that I'm aware of. And, I, and I'm pretty glad I didn't because, you know, not to sound too much like a germaphobe, but I'd be worried about eating the cake afterward. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, it's true. Uh, there are measures that historical measures even that have been put in place, but they're all a bit on the blunt instrument side. You know what I mean? Like I don't find that any of them were particularly precise or well thought out. Um, but yeah, I've never had a human being pop out of a cake in my presence, scantily clad female or otherwise. I, I would honestly, uh, I don't like surprises. First of all, I don't like, uh, jump scares as they call them in the, uh, horror movie genre. So Mm -hmm. I would be a little irritated if someone did that for me. Uh, I would I would call it more doing it to me. Um, <laughs> it's a weird so flex. It's a I, I know, and I wish we could save this honestly for weird historical flexes, which I think will be rearing its weird flexy uh, head again in the near future. But for now, uh, there's a lot to this story: the weird, uh, dark, and troubling history of women popping out of cakes. Who knew? Who knew? Uh, I think. I, like many of us, had sort of assumed this was one of those old saws that maybe really happened once and then became embellished as the years went on. Oh, we should check. Super producer Casey Pegram... 
have you, in fact, had a, someone jump out of a cake uh, at a celebration in on your behalf? I have not had a direct personal experience of this. However, um, the first thing that came to mind was a sequence in the Steven Seagal vehicle under siege. What, did it involve a spray of machine gun fire? It did indeed. After uh, pr- pretty soon after the cake jumping event uh, occurred, I think. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Did uh, Steven Seagal's character, whatever his name is in this, uh, did Steven Seagal's character jump out of the cake and shoot guns? Because that would be dope. I objectively. Uh, yeah. You know, I have to. I have to uh, fess up. I don't even remember if it's him that jumps out of the cake or like a bad guy or it's actually just like a model or something that does it, but there's something involving cake jumping on a cruise ship. You know, it's funny, Casey. Uh, Casey on the case, indeed, with that one. We're going to get to a historical precedent that that was uh, paying homage to. That is not the uh, the uh, the only the lone example of a uh, of someone popping out of a of a cake and and, and shooting machine guns. Um, did you guys realize that Under Siege was a pretty unsuccessful uh, uh, franchise? If I'm not mistaken, wasn't there a sequel to Under Siege? Did it involve be- a different type of vehicle being Under Siege? Wasn't the first one a ship and the second one was like a train? Maybe did I make that up? Uh, Under Siege. You are correct, Noel. Under Siege 2, Dark Territory in 1995. <laughs> uh, it also had Steven Seagal in it. He was playing Casey Ryback. Uh, hopefully not uh, not related to our own Casey, but I don't want to put you in a box. I don't want to put you in a cake here, Casey. I don't want you to be in a corner. Uh, so if you want to, uh, if you want to do a remake a reboot of Under Siege, I morally support you. Not financially, but morally. Uh, just for the record, Under Siege 1, ship, Under Siege 2, train. Mm. So wait a second. They did get Seagull for the second one. Yeah, that's what I was saying. They had the train and Seagull. It makes me wonder, Casey, if you're thinking of some sort of really direct-to-DVD third Under Siege movie that we've all completely forgotten about. This could be. This could be. I mean, if you see the stuff Seagal is doing now, it's uh, it's pretty impressively terrible. Uh, especially his music videos, which are a story for another day. I, I want to get back, though, to the cake aspect here because, you know, it's true. This, Even though we've seen this as a trope in a lot of film, TV shows, cartoons, and so on, uh, it really does happen. It, it's actually happened in the past. It's actually happening in the modern day, especially in play in, you know, like dens of, uh, or hives of scum and villainy like Vegas. Nowadays, the cakes are usually made from a, a, a sort of flimsy cardboard. I think that's part of the, um, the, the health precautions that, that we alluded to earlier, but it turns out that people have been putting not just people, but other living things in food for the purpose of, you know, um, snickers and giggles since we're a family show for for hundreds and hundreds of years like our first our first look at this takes us all the way back to ancient rome correct yeah and and i have a personal real problem with this situation for obvious reasons that, that if anyone's longtime listeners will uh, very quickly cue into um yeah it's true revelers in ancient rome um would often serve up bizarrely decadent uh dishes at these kind of gluttony parties you know these sort of bacchanals that were rife with uh, drunkenness and even you know overeating to the point of vomiting you know we all know about that and the idea of these vomitoriums it was a real 
time of excess. And they would often, uh, like these these chefs, I guess, or these, you know, um, royal caterers or whatever, uh, would try to, like, one-up each other by putting weirder and weirder creatures into these dishes, stuffing them, uh, serving up. Well, they would actually, first of all, cook the actual animals. We'll get to the, the live aspect of it later. But things like peacocks or ostriches. Uh, I have had ostrich jerky. I think you have too, Ben, because you're kind of the jerky guy. You're the, the exotic jerky guy. Ostrich, pretty pretty okay. I, I can get behind that. Um, dormice? What's a dormouse? I know it's that character from, uh, they say dead as a dormouse. Isn't it a character from Alice in Wonderland? Is it an actual mouse? I don't know. We'll get to that in a little bit, but maybe not. I'm 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 holding off from interceding, but but I will jump in to hit those two points. Yeah, there are actual dormice, and then also jerky guy um, is 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 a little bit misleading. I just tend to eat a lot of weird stuff in my weird adventures. Um, and actually, you know, I'm not I'm not the biggest jerky fan. It's interesting in game because like with sausage um jerky from game animals is usually just covered with spices to kind of get rid of the taste but ostrich itself if you can get it fresh not bad not bad at all it's almost got more of a beef-like quality to it because it's very dark meat because it's obviously a very lean animal and it almost tastes more like steak or something but ben i didn't mean to mischaracterize you as the jerky guy i i just meant that you are probably one of the people who in my life, I've known to have eaten the most unusual of jerkies. So that let me caveat that. But I like where you're going with this because we know that food has always been, and you know, as much of an occasion as it has been a sustenance, particularly for the elites of the world, right? Uh, like a lot of medieval cuisine. This will baffle people, but a lot of medieval cuisine. Uh, place this huge emphasis on making things taste like things they weren't. So making fowl taste like fish and so on. There sure. were, yeah, there were all these David Copperfield esque stunts, you know, like, um, like we, we see the, uh, the modern version of this in turducken, right? That's, it, that's the one where it's like, a what is it? It's a chicken, Stuffed inside a duck inside a turkey? Well, well, I think it's got to go Russian nesting doll style, so it would be the biggest on the outside. So mm -hmm. I think the turkey would be the outside, yeah. and the duck inside the turkey, and the chicken inside the duck. So Okay, so like I said, yeah, because the chicken can be smaller, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, so like the Matryoshka dolls. This is an old, old practice. People have been stuffing an animal inside another one uh, since the days of Rome, since the glory that was Rome. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, today's episode is obviously about live things, uh, human or otherwise, um, popping out of other things. And, and we're definitely going to get to that. But there was a whole period, too, where, you know, the pageantry of these uh, these dinner parties was really on full display. Um, chefs would even create these kind of imaginary creatures known as cockatrices, which was like this just bizarre kind of Norman Batesy kind of splicing of like a pig and a chicken um, into this totally new animal and then uh, there was also a historian named Petronius wrote of all of these dishes that were made to look like they were still alive this idea of fish swimming in a sea of sauce using some macabre kind of you know mechanism and and, and a rabbit uh, that had birds wings sewn onto it made to look like some sort of ugh, bizarre pegasus uh, but then uh, Ben we get into the period of, of medieval times 
times. And you made a really good point earlier, this idea of stuff tasting like other things. Um, one thing that there's a really great show called uh, Heston Blumenthal's feast or something like that he's this really interesting chef out of the uk who's all about like kind of tricking the mind into when when flavors are concerned and he um would recreate a lot of these dishes that we're going to talk about in a second one of which was he made like a really delicious piece of fruit that actually was made of meat um and that was a thing too this idea of kind of tricking the senses and subverting expectations uh but in those medieval days we really got into the most uh grotesque and kind of macabre uh, area of uh, using live animals um, and that's when you start to see the idea of like a suckling pig with an apple in its mouth made to look like it was kind of still alive um, that was where that sort of trope comes from but uh, once we get into uh, deeper into the medieval period uh, just just the appearance of, of an animal being alive wasn't enough anymore right right yeah so we moved past the uh, the edible dioramas that people were making where it looked like the fish were swimming and it looked like, you know, these various animals from mythology were real and on the banquet table to the use of birds and frogs. They were placed into pies. And this was uh, this was pretty popular, actually. This was not a one-off thing. You can actually find some recipes for this in Italian cookbooks, uh, one especially from 1474, where a guy named Maestro Martino explains the, the nuts and bolts of this. You make a hole in the bottom crust of a pie, you put another pie inside, and then in the empty space that remains around the pie, put live birds, as many as you can hold in there, and they should be placed in just before this thing can be served so that they're still you know, healthy enough to fly. And when it's served before everybody seated at the banquet, you remove the cover, the birds fly away. This is done to entertain and amuse your company. And then in order to make sure that they don't get disappointed by this, make sure they know there's also a real pie. I, I want to shout out one book in particular. You guys can see it because we're on camera here. This is a book by one of my favorite nonfiction um, writers, a guy named Mark Kurlansky. It's called Choice Cuts. And if you want to learn more about uh, medieval food, check this book out. He didn't pay me to say this. I just I love the guy. Yeah, and, and stuff like this kind of lived on in song in, in these nursery rhymes. Um, the song Sing a Song of Sixpence uh, has the, the, the lyric about four and 20 blackbirds being baked in a pie. I actually mentioned this to a friend of mine who's a super history buff, and he was unaware of this was an actual thing that they that people did, and I was only aware of it because of that Heston Blumenthal show, and he does do this actual recipe. And the key is like, you know, having that ridge sort of like reservoir on the outside around the actual pie so the birds can like crap all over that part, I guess. But again, you want to put them in there pretty quickly before you do this. So they don't have too much time to, you know, do their business inside of the uh, in the food stuff. Uh, but still seemingly not a particularly uh, thoughtful um, mechanism to keep the food clean. Yeah, I don't imagine PETA would be particularly enthused about this. Uh, we do want to mention, of course, families like the Medici's, you know, of Italian infamy, were known for creating these kind of things. These were not dishes you would make at home to like surprise your kids. Uh, the the Medici's get cited in the 1600s for uh, bringing frogs into the mix, and the entirety. To your point about feeling like a uh, 
a person jumping out of a cake would be a surprise at you instead of for you. The frogs were definitely meant to be a surprise at someone, uh, causing the noble women to lose their minds. Uh, I love that you're pointing out the song because I also thought that was just... uh, I don't know, some some uh, whimsical jejun nonsense. Exactly. <laughs> jejun? I don't know this word, Ben. I love it. Please tell me. So jejun is uh, one of those beautiful English words that uh, doesn't get used often. Actually, it's a French word, I believe, but uh, you can use it in English. It just means simplistic or superficial. Why well, I'm adding that to my, uh, to my arsenal of new words, Ben. Thank you for that. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids how about instead of timeouts time ins time for you to start paying some bills i'm jb smooth and that was a full episode of my new podcast straightforward inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from at&t fiber get what you want without the complicated at&t fiber live like a giggillionaire available wherever you get your podcast limited availability in select areas visit att.com slash hypergig for details This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonneville's. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one, and that was a that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I meant I said El Camino, and I meant Monte Carlo. I miss it so. Uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, You know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. And so, like we said, um, you know, this does eventually kind of escalate, I guess we can say, to using actual humans. But that doesn't happen until this uh, trend kind of, you know, fell out of fashion because obviously it was kind of gross and absurd. And, uh, you know, people got into more like the idea of having delicious food instead of weird flex pageantry, you know, like with for French cuisine and stuff. And obviously there's, you know, still things like the Ortolan, that uh, rare songbird that people would eat covering their faces to hide their shame from God. Like in a single bite, they would eat this tiny little bird bones and all. Um, but apparently that's a delicacy and it is supposed to be not only a weird flex, but pretty tasty and, and, you know, braised in butter and fried or some Something like that. Uh, I don't know if you get a sauce with your ortolan or if you're just supposed to eat it all in one go. It's a weird one. You're so, it's so small uh, that you you real. It's just a few bites. It's like a tapa. Got it. It's like a like a like a like a hand roll or something. You know? <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, the human component really doesn't come in until the 16th century. Yeah, that's correct. This is weird. Uh, a lot of this comes to us from a researcher named Jesse D. Hurlbut, uh, he was at the Symposium on Medieval Studies over at Indiana University, and he tells some stories that sound, I'll, I'll just say it, they sound patently untrue. It's weird that the truth is stranger than fiction here. There's a guy named Philippe Le Bon. He's a, a famous French engineer, and once upon a time, true story, he threw a party where 28 musicians were baked in a giant meat pie, and they came out of the pie playing their instruments. Again, I you know I can see how the spectacle of that is amazing. That's a cool concert. I can see Kanye West doing something like that, but I don't think I would want to eat the pie. You know, these people do they have shoes on? Have they washed their hands? These are very important questions, Ben. And, and just to quickly point out, I'm, uh, not to insult anybody's intelligence, but these are pies uh, more like a like a pasty or a meat pie, like a giant pot pie, uh, usually with beef and vegetables and some kind of gravy um, with a nice crust on the outside. So this wouldn't have been a sweet pie. This would have been a savory pie. Um, <laughs> Great point. Yeah, yeah. Just, just, just really quickly to, to, to point that out. Uh, and then in 1626, we have uh, an example um, perpetrated, I'm going to say, by the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham, um, who were presenting Charles I uh, and his wife with with a, a similarly novelty uh, giant pie. This one filled with uh, with a dwarf. Is it okay? Is dwarf okay? Is that what we say? Well, we're quoting the historical context here, uh, and people have still used the phrase. I don't know if you want to go with um, little person, but... I, I find little person to be more... Condescending. Diminutive and condescending yeah. for some... I just want to know what the actual community uh, thinks. I thought that dwarf was okay, but maybe that's that, that sounds wrong. So let's just go with that as the historical context here. Yeah, we're saying that because that's what they said in the That text. is what they said. And this was uh, a gentleman by the name of Sir Jeffrey Hudson, a.k.a. Lord Minimus, the Queen's Dwarf. And he was wearing a full suit of armor. 
So absolutely meant to poke fun at this gentleman's stature and make a mockery of him. Uh, uh, not cool or okay at all. Um, but this is the kind of stuff that uh, the royals got off on back in those days. We also have to mention, of course, it, it's similar to the idea of hermit gardeners. The fact that people had would, would make a career out of being a novelty for the wealthy. There is an argument to be made that perhaps uh, Sir Hudson had a better existence at the time than he would have uh, otherwise, just physically. But mentally, that stuff has to take a toll on you. You know what I mean? I, I don't want to be paid to be the court amusement. But now, on to the cake, 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 cake. Uh, by the 1800s, we know, uh, this, we know a story that, um, uh, of someone named Susie Johnson. Now, we do want to say, as we go into this, a bit of a disclaimer. Uh, like we said at the top, parts of this story take a dark turn. This does delve a little bit into the world of true crime, um, but we think it's fascinating and we think it would be unfair of us if we didn't tell the whole story to the best of our ability. Yeah, and, and to, 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 to piggyback off of that disclaimer, it does involve some violence towards women um, and some sexual assault. Uh, but the, the guilty parties ultimately get their comeuppance in this story, which is, is, is another reason that I thought it was an interesting one to include. Um, so let's start off uh, with the story of Susie Johnston. Um, showgirls jumping out of cakes in the 50s was a, was a big old thing. Uh, became super mainstream. That's probably where most of us have seen this trope, is in some sort of soiree involving rich, wealthy, you know, well-dressed gentlemen smoking cigars and drinking you know, their scotches and ogling uh, some sort of scantily clad young woman that pops out of the cake, right? Yeah, like some kind of uh, stereotypical uh, bombshell doing some like, happy birthday, Mr. President kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So by the 1800s, this, this concept of live people coming out of baked goods uh, starts to be limited in its demographic. It's primarily going to be uh, conventionally attractive women, and they're going to be at decadent parties thrown by the aristocrats of the modern age, wealthy dudes, right? Often in industry, probably some aristocrats too. So we want to introduce to this story a, a character, I, I would call him a prominent antagonist in this story. His name is Stanford White. As you can imagine, if you have uh, biases toward names, uh, that's that's the name that sounds like a well-off guy. He's a wealthy architect. He specializes in building houses and uh, religious buildings for his wealthy friends and other institutions. In New York City, on May 20th, 1895, he throws a dinner party where uh, we believe around 50 other equally well-off men uh, come into play and attend. This this is weird. Okay, these guys are such jerks. One of them is such a jerk. Uh, it's a party, ostensibly a wedding anniversary for a polo player named John Elliott Cowden. And uh, I just want to point out, before we get into anything else, it's his wedding anniversary party, and his wife is not invited. Yeah. 
conspicuously not invited. Uh, there are no women on the guest list, only on the staff. And uh, pretty much all of them are uh, very scantily clad. Um, so we had a handful of models that would entertain the male guests, you know, serving them their their brandies and their coffees and their, you know, fine delicacies of oysters and clams and champagne cocktails, etc. There was even uh, a rumor that uh, the hair colors of the the staff of, uh, of models was coordinated to go with the wine courses. So the brunettes would pour the red wine, the blondes would pour the white. Um, there's a lot of apocryphal kind of like built into this story because of one of the accounts that we're going to get into, but um, I don't know. That seems like the kind of uh, obscene bacchanalian flex that like a guy like this would 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 be into. Agreed. Like he's definitely trying to impress his uh, his attendees, and his inte- his attendees are famous in their day. Uh, Nikola Tesla was there, uh, an illustrator named Charles Dana Gibson, who's the creator of the famous Gibson Girl. And, you know, there, there are loads and loads of who's who's attending this place, right? And according to what we understand, again, about this story, it was Stanford White's idea to involve Susie Johnson. So she was the big ticket performance of this dinner party. After these guys have noshed to their heart's content, they bring out this enormous pie. And then, according to Evelyn Nesbitt, who also plays a role in this story, out of this pie jumped Susie Johnson. She was only wearing a flimsy piece of of see-through gauze. And, you know, this might sound like it's kind of bawdy, otherwise good-hearted Vegas-style fun, but I need to, we have to point out, this girl was 16 years old. Uh, and, and there were also a lot of birds that jumped out with her. So they flew out in the room. The 16-year-old girl dressed in virtually nothing uh, pops out. And uh, and it's like, you know, happy anniversary or whatever. Where's your wife? Yeah, uh, it's true. The, 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 the pie was uh, full of uh, nightingales and other songbirds. Uh, I got a question for you, Ben, just, just on a purely practical kind of functional level. What do you do now? You just accept that there are just birds roaming around your party for the rest of the evening. Is there a bird wrangler that then goes and scoops them all up and, uh, you know, uh, hur- hurries them off into some back room to be dealt with or uh, what, what happens to these birds? We, we, we don't ever, nobody ever talks about that. Right, right. This is an important point because um, not all birds behave equally, right? If they were releasing a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of emus, it would be hilarious, uh, but they would be tougher to wrangle. Uh, so, you know, if they were releasing trained pigeons, then the pigeons would just fly to wherever they were supposed to roost. Uh, what kind of birds did they have? It was more than one, right? Yeah, I think I'd said nightingales earlier. They also uh, were using canaries and doves. Um, you know, and doves doves are trainable. They're they're used in magic shows a lot and they're they behave pretty well i think canaries are also you know domesticated birds i guess let's say for lack of a better term don't know about nightingales um i just know that song a nightingale sang in harvard square uh but i digress so yeah i i would personally leave the party immediately if this were to happen um i would consider it a personal affront and would have been very upset that no one gave me the heads up uh it reminds me of a crazy stunt the rolling stones tried to pull i believe it was at madison square garden on the exile and main street tour they had this idea that they were going to drop like something like a thousand live chicks from the rafters onto the uh, the crowd just to see what would happen. 
They just wanted to watch the world burn, you know, or get pecked to death by chickens. Uh, thankfully, I don't know that it actually happened. And if it had, God, God help the Rolling Stones. That would have been a, a, a total melee. Mm, I think it would have been a, a disaster of their own devising. Uh, so I, I'm glad, hopefully, that uh, everybody in the band remains safe. As safe as you can be when you're doing Keith's level of drugs. Oh, my God. I can't believe that guy's still with us. Uh, and so Susie Johnson, remember, she's, she emerges from this cake. These birds fly away. Um, she also has her own little kind of topper. She's got a little hat on that looks like a, a nightingale itself. Um, I guess she's sort of meant to be like a sexy nightingale you know, humanoid nightingale kind of creature. 16 years old. 16 years old. Uh, as we get into it, if you can believe the reports of this pretty sensationalized account that was printed in the book Evelyn Nesbitt and Stanford White, Love and Death in the Gilded Age by Michael Mooney. Um, well, let's read a little excerpt here. Ben, would, would you like to join me in this? Uh, Yeah, this is a really long one. Why don't we split it up? Uh, totally. Okay, yeah. The room soon hung heavy with acrid smells, the combination of wines, too much food, a fog of cigarette smoke, the sweat of the men mingled with the steaming sweat of the girls that mixed with their powders and perfumes. Then a whistle sounded, and through the swinging doors a file of Roman slave girls appeared, their bodies streaked with sweat, bearing a huge trestle, six girls on each side of it. Upon the trestle was what appeared to be a monstrous pie, the crust of a meringue of ermine white and the base surrounded by banks of red and blue flowers. They began to circle the pie and to sing to it, their voices now heavy with wine and passion and incipient catar. <laughs> You're going to have to do a little uh, explanation of that word later. And at the queue, the top of the pie rose up, and birds, doves, canaries, and nightingales began to fly everywhere in the room. As the birds scattered, a shining blonde child rose from the center of the pie, making graceful weaving motions with her arms. So just to set a stage here, Qatar, incipient Qatar, uh, that, that's a word for a buildup of mucus in your throat it's okay. not a sexy word it no. means like they had spit in their mouths so a lot of people were just kind of hacking and wheezing is that the implication or that they were just like pavlovian dogs drooling over the sound of uh, the bell perhaps there was a bell involved yeah yeah it becomes i think it's both of those they are waxing oh, it, was, it was a whistle it was a whistle yeah but you see what i'm saying though like I've, I've been reading some accounts of this particular uh uh tale that was printed in this book and uh this gentleman mooney is not considered to be the best of primary sources uh as you can see there's probably some editorializing going on here but it's fascinating time capsule kind of piece either way so what happens next ben and this is where the to the story really does take kind of a dark turn so it's important to say that Susie Johnson will later go on to be described by some sources as one of the best and most well-known models in New York City, but this is after a, a terrible, terrible thing happens to her. Uh, the public finds out about this in, uh, in a couple of different places, and the public doesn't react very well to it. Um, you can see a photo in an illustration in New York World 
where the architect, Stanford White, is standing to the left of, and I believe you can look up this illustration online now, but the, the architect, Stanford White, he's standing next to Susie Johnson's left, and he's sort of like proffering a kitchen knife like he's about to carve her up. It's, it's predatory AF. The thing is that this dinner, the public learns this dinner costs more than 2,300 times the daily wage of the average worker in New York. So this looks like um, degenerate activities of the aristocracy, right? Uh, we also know that Susie herself was, several accounts say that she was later physically assaulted uh, by the guy for whom the party was being thrown. So on the night of his 10th wedding anniversary, this dude uh, attacked a 16-year-old child. It's true, Ben. Um, and in a publication called the New York World uh, Magazine, or, or, or kind of, it was more of like a bit of a, a pulpy kind of rag at the time. Um, there's an image, an illustration of this event uh, with Susie Johnson not shown quite in the buff like she would have been, or, or you know, more with the like very very see through outfit on. She's more kind of cloaked in this billowy kind of dress. Uh, but there, you can see uh, an image, a representation of Stanford White standing to her left with a large kitchen knife. This kind of like almost wolfish look at his eyes, and it turns out that wasn't too far from the truth because Evelyn Nesbitt, who becomes a key player in in where the story is ultimately going, um, remarked to uh, to White uh, later that I heard you ruined uh, Susie Johnson. Ruined being sort of a euphemism for uh, at the time uh, taking one's virginity or some sort of um, you know robbing someone of their innocence or you know because in the eyes of society you would be looked at as damaged goods you know for to use a term that was thrown around at the time um, or you would you know no one would want to marry you. It would be a huge. Uh, blow to one's reputation if they found out that someone had lost their virginity um, or, or, you know, been in, been pregnant out of wedlock or had a, all that stuff was a really big deal at the time. So, uh, but it turns out that it was, that it was uh, Evelyn Nesbitt that would really bear the brunt of this in a pretty explosive way. Isn't that right, Ben? Yeah, that's correct. So ruin was a euphemism for sex outside of wedlock. Uh, the idea then being that if someone was not a virgin, their marriage prospects would go from 100 to zero or maybe one. So here's how the situation goes down. The first recorded pop-out cake party isn't just linked to people jumping out of cake or jumping out of pie in this case. It's also linked to true crime. Um, this is where we dive into some of the uh, some of the terrible details here. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Noel, do you remember your favorite car? 
Well, yeah, um, it was a uh, an Eddie Bauer edition Ford Explorer. Oh, that's and cool. I, yeah, I, I just remember it was my dad's. I, I was a hand me down car kind of kid. Dad would buy a new car, I'd get that car, and I just remember feeling so awesome being up above everybody, like I was mm. in Mad Max or something. You know, I had a lot of uh, land yachts that I loved. I had Pontiac yeah. Bonnevilles. Right. Oh, I never had an El Camino. My dad had one. And that was a, that was a real interesting use of our collective time, keeping that thing running. But I think these cars all kind of speak to us because they were such a fundamental part of our lives. Do you remember when I had that Monte Carlo? That's what I meant. I, meant, I said El Camino <laughs> and I met Monte Carlo. I miss it. So uh, the Monte Carlo was tough. I had a series of Monte Carlos and the last one, God bless it. I just, I, I had to learn a lot about car maintenance just to keep that guy running. Totally. It, it still was like a, a perfect fit. It's almost like finding your true love. Uh, you know, like when you recently got a car a few years back now, Oh, man. And funny you should say that. That particular perfect fit was the Honda Fit, which I love dearly. But, Ben, it's getting a little long in the tooth. And while it's been incredibly reliable up to now, it's getting to that age where I might have to start looking for some parts here and there to keep it running. Mm -hmm. And that's where eBay Motors comes in. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. So keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. So white is not just kind of scummy to Susie. He is also scummy to Evelyn Nesbitt. We know that he had, according to sources, he was 47 at the time of his interactions with her. She was like Susie 16. And he said he was going to, he's like, I'm going to make your career as a model. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to pay for your expenses. I'm going to pay for your mom's expenses. Uh, let's just work something out. This happens, we have to remember, in the 1890s when New York City was full of young women who were coming to the uh, the Big Apple to make it big in Broadway. Sometimes they would end up being models for the ad industry. Sometimes they would be in a chorus line. Sometimes they would make it on stage. Sometimes they would get a job at a factory or they have to resort to sex work. So when White invites Nesbitt to his 24th Street apartment, and he owns a lot of apartments, again, he's wealthy, he takes her to the top floor and he's rigged a velvet swing to hang from the ceiling. He sat her on the swing and then he um, pushed her on the swing, basically, which is creepy. But nothing else happens really that night. A little bit afterwards, he takes this kid, again, a teenager, to his bedroom. He drugs her with champagne and he assaults her. And she wakes, when she wakes up, he's, he says, now you belong to me? Ooh. That is some, like, serious villainy right there. Just absolutely. Um, talk about, oh, gosh. It's good to see nowadays people 
like that in positions of power, you know, getting taken to task like a Weinstein or something. But this was uh, the earliest, most egregious version of taking advantage of folks who are trying to, you know, make their careers. And he literally offered to take care of her and to pay her and her mother's costs of living, you know, absolute wolf, you know, just a really disgusting man. And we're not, this isn't conjecture. I mean, this, this is all stuff that came out in a trial that would ultimately ensue. Uh, so Nesbitt didn't tell anyone about this rape until a few years later when she told a uh, man she was about to marry, uh, a man named Harry Thaw, the story. Um, Thaw also apparently wasn't the most upstanding of gentlemen. He was rumored to have been beaten many working class women with dog whips and uh, uh, soaked them in boiling water like uh, some kind of kink maybe Ben I don't uh, just I'm not quite sure about that the idea of uh, bull whips and, and the, the water thing make me think it was some sort of like fetish but uh, it's it's not clear from from the record here um, but yeah he uh, he heard this story from his uh, his his betrothed um, and he absolutely lost his mind right because uh, he didn't want uh, he did not want white doing stuff to his wife that he apparently had no problem doing to other women uh, and I, I for one am glad to live in an age where uh, it's possible to not know what a dog whip is. That's disturbing that that's just a casual thing thrown around. So, yeah, he is incensed. He's livid. Uh, he is not dealing with his own hypocrisy. Instead, he's taking action on June 25th, 1906, at the opening performance in Madison Square Garden, the same theater that Stanford White himself had designed. Harry Thaw finds Stanford White and he shoots him fatally. He's getting marched out of the theater by a nearby fireman. And he's still hold, like they've, they've taken the gun away and he's like yelling at his wife, Evelyn. And he says, he ruined your life, dear. That's why I did it. And then it goes to the courtroom you were talking about, Noel. That's right. Uh, it was the trial of the century, even though it was only the very beginning of the century. Um, but it was a massive uh, media frenzy because uh, Nesbitt actually was able to testify on the stand. And she narrated every detail of this uh, horrific rape to the courtroom and then answered uh, in very dignified fashion and really, you know, held her head high. Um, so this was a very early example of of disgusting, you know, powerful men having done terrible things and being kind of taken to task for it. Thaw uh, was uh, committed to a, uh, a psychiatric institution, um, and Nesbitt did not have an easy life after this. She uh, had problems with addiction, uh, but she continued um, her life as a uh, perform as a dancer, um, a performer, because she was, you know, from that world of theater as well, and she also taught. Uh, and then in the 1960s, she she did pass away. Johnson, on the other hand, we you know Johnson was the girl from the cake. Let's not forget uh, Nesbit was just kind of the chronicler of a lot of this stuff and became sort of the face of this kind of you know speaking out against the, against these kinds of activities. Uh, Johnson sort of disappeared into kind of the red light district after the situation with she was a, a successful model for a time, but then she sort of went off the grid, um, and we don't really have a whole lot 
lot of information about her. Um, but one report from 1907 um, indicates that she did get married, but then her husband eventually found out about her uh, pie girl days. And that alone, just being the object of men's, uh, you know, for a, another man to see your wife, you know, Without her clothes on, that would be enough to drive a man at this time like into a rage and, and a completely jealous fugue state. Um, so, yeah, he found out about this. And apparently, according to this account from 1907, left her. Yep. It's the end of the tale. Um, and we like that there's I don't know about you, but I, I like to think that maybe things did turn out better for uh, Susie and that maybe this yellow journalism was just chasing a headline instead of presenting facts. It's such a, it's a, it's such a prurient case and the kind of stuff that would have just had these yellow journalists kind of licking their chops, you know, and just mm. like, like, how can we uh, exaggerate an already pretty um, over the top story? So that's why it's, you got to take some of the stuff with a grain of salt in this, especially uh, that, that account of the party even. Even. I mean, it seems like there's some truth to it, but there's also seems to be a lot of liberties being taken. And that was just sort of par for the course at the time. And yeah, yeah. Good point. And, and look, we're not saying this should ruin your experience with your friends, your loved ones or paid professionals jumping out of cakes. It's just fascinating to know that it has such a, a, uh, a deep story behind it. You can see in the, in the modern day, you can still see this practice. If you so desire, you can pay someone to build a cake for someone else to jump out of, right? Oh, yeah, you totally can. It's actually, you know, it's just a lot more accessible these days because back then it was kind of relegated to the super rich and the cakes were meant to be edible and they would be like, you know, you'd have to figure out a way to stuff a human person in a in a hollow cylinder inside of like a, a pastry. Uh, and today you can actually order one of these things, about 25 pounds, and it comes in sort of a modular package of, of different folded cardboard pieces, sort of like building like a cardboard castle for your kids or whatever, but, you know, not the same at all. Um, there's instructions that come with it. Everything you need to do only takes about five minutes to put together. And this comes from uh, a gentleman by the name of Danny, who's the office manager at Centerfold Strips Entertainment. Um, and and uh, I think Danny might be a might be a might be a woman, but um, apparently this is a, a thing that they uh, specialize in, and they can send these packages all around. Yep, that's right. So if you've ever wondered, hey, how do I get in on that Medici level debauchery? Well, you you're you're closer than you might think. This practice we have to note is uh, is safer than the old uh, the old practices. And, 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 you know, obviously, of course, some people are, are jerks and there's still certain stigmas surrounding sex workers, but it is a much more accepted thing. And there's not this, you know, absolutely damning stigma of, you know, if, if you're caught doing this kind of work or if you're caught jumping out of a cake or something, you're going to be um, absolutely unmarriable. Uh, that's just not nearly the case anymore. And um, there is an interview in this article on Thrillist.com about this company that makes the cakes um, uh, with a uh, sex worker by the name of fantasy who talks about how she enjoys being the girl in the cake and finds it empowering because she knows uh, this is a quote from her that uh, you're the reason a night is going to turn crazy especially when you're the reason that men go wild so um, taking ownership of that uh, that power I yeah and I I'd like to I'd like to sum it up with one observation here it is actually easier now 
to have a live person jump out of a cake uh, than it is to have a live animal jump out of a cake or a pie because human beings, of course, can consent to getting in in the first place. Very good point, Ben. Thanks, Noel. And with that, we're going to uh, call it a day. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed this strange, uh, twisted tale. And I, I, I think one good takeaway from this is that you never know what kind of practice has a has a weird story behind it. I'm still personally baffled by neckties, like why we wear those. I did a brain stuff video about that back in the day. It, it never really had a, a function, but check that out. I don't think we should do an episode on it, by the way. It's, it's too short. It's weird. Well, I, I will tell you, man, this one had a lot more going on in it than I ever would have expected uh, upon initial uh, initially seeing the headline and, and, and when Gabe sent us kind of this, uh, this topic. So thanks, uh, huge thanks to um, research associate Gabe Lugia, who we're definitely going to have on very soon um, as we all occupy our, uh, our private, uh, our broadcast quarantine bunkers uh, in this time of, of uh, self-isolation. So hope everyone's doing well out there. Uh, ben, it's uh, always a, a joy to kind of be able to pop on and do these with you uh, and super producer Casey Pegram. It kind of makes me feel a little less crazy. I'm very lucky that part of our job is actually interacting with, uh, with you. Uh, intelligent and fine fine gentlemen so uh, really appreciate you guys being there likewise thanks Noel uh, big thanks of course to our super producer Casey Pegrup our uh, our you know on and off again erstwhile nemesis Jonathan Strickland aka the quizster uh, thanks to Eve's Jeffcoat thanks to uh, Christopher Hasiotis uh, who we also we have this list of some people who will be making some cameos on our show we don't want to thank them all yet but uh, stay tuned because uh, we have such wonders to show you uh, and tune in next time uh, when let's see I don't want to spoil this too much but we have a very weird story about a bottle for you Let's just leave it at that. I'd rather have a bottle in front of me than a frontal lobotomy. You know that one? Isn't that spoonerism? Tom Waits. Is that Tom Waits? Uh, well, he's the one who popularized it, at least. Uh, it's true. Well, this, uh, this this story is all about somebody uh, preferring to have a bottle in front of them as well uh, and uh, doing some pretty interesting things, uh, supposedly, uh, allegedly, with said bottle. Uh, uh, your imaginations out there in podcast land have to be running wild right now, and I'm absolutely okay with that. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com 
or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 